Well, hello. My name is Erin Donahue, and I'm a student physical therapist at New York Medical College. And my name is Clay Nelms, and I'm also a student physical therapist at New York Medical College. And welcome to the elder millennial version of Zen Master Flex with us. Pew, 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 pew. Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> so, Clay, what are we talking about today? Well, today, Erin, I thought we'd talk about uh, acupuncture and acupressure. Ooh, this sounds fun. Absolutely. I know that it's been very, very popular. I've seen acupuncturist offices all over New York, all over Westchester. Maybe we should talk about a little bit about what acupuncture and acupressure is. That's a fantastic idea, Erin. Um, well, a little bit about the history. Um, acupuncture um, is a form of traditional Chinese medicine uh, that's been developed over the past 3,500 years. Uh, it started in the Shang Dynasty. Um, back in the day, uh, uh, health and medicine in the Shang Dynasty were linked to ancestral beliefs and healing uh, dealt greatly with Things like warding off demons and... Oh, I have ancestral. some demons. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? Um, during that time, um, acupuncture was a minor practice, and they inserted needles or stone lancets in hopes to expel or ward off these unseen forces. Um, later, um, during the Han Dynasty, uh, doctrines like the principles of yin and yang and the five elements were used to describe people's health conditions. Um, during this period, there was a big lack of standardization of practices, uh, and there were often contradictory uh, subjects of, uh, of thought. Um, through the development of varying schools of thought, practices like acupuncture varied greatly. Um, it wasn't until later in the Song Dynasty that acupuncture became more popular. Uh, but without regulation, there were increased incidences of mistreatment. Uh, so as a result, the Emperor, Emperor Renzong uh, ordered a national standard for acupuncture and acupressure points and uh, created what they called the Bronze Men. These were statues that contained uh, the first depictions of meridian lines uh, and points depicted for needle insertion. Um, these statues also sort of opened up to reveal the internal skeletal and organ systems. Uh, finally, in the Qing Dynasty, acupuncture was modified to include uh, the practice of using fine steel needles that um, practitioners use today. And um, I know you had mentioned to me before we started that the uh, Qing Dynasty was still a really long time ago, 1644 CE to 1912 CE. So these needles and the bronze man standardization has been used for a very, very long time. Um, thank you so much for telling us about the history of it. I'm just gonna briefly describe what it is. You had mentioned the long needles. So those can be inserted at different meridian points. They can also be um, kind of augmented by using a twisting motion with them, pressure, heat can be applied to them. Sometimes that's done with a heat lamp um, and actually even electrical stimulation can be used. Now, acupressure 
uses those same points, but instead of using needles, you're using generally the pressure of a practitioner's finger or thumb, but they can also be um, stimulated using synthetic devices. I know I'm a big fan of C-bands, um, which are wristbands, and they have a little plastic dot in the middle that you put on an acupoint at your wrist. And for me, it's the best thing I've ever used for nausea. That's amazing, and it sounds really accessible as well. Well, that's what I love about it is that, you know, I, I'm absolutely a fan of medication when it's necessary, but if I can use something that's natural to control my nausea, because I get the worst motion sickness, you know, I just carry them in my purse all the time. I can pull it out, bip, 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 quick as pie. Actually, pie isn't very quick to make, but it's quick to eat. Anyhow, um, so I know that there is a lot of evidence for both acupuncture and acupressure. Um, as a matter of fact, the CDC put out a report in 2007 that it kind of goes, um, it's not just about acupuncture and acupressure. It talks about complementary medicine in general. And what they found is that complementary medicine has really, really increased in the last several years. And of course, this report is a little bit out of date today, but they found that between 2002 and 2007, there's been a large increase in the use of complementary medicine. Um, a couple of interesting statistics that they've found, because I know you had mentioned before that this used to be kind of a, a minor part of traditional Chinese medicine, um, whereas nowadays it, it's quite major. Um, and as of 2007, the CDC found that there were 10 systematic reviews that found that there was sufficient evidence to prove that complementary medicine, specifically acupuncture, was very effective for back pain, for knee pain, for insomnia, and also for nausea, like I had mentioned before for me, and for vomiting. So Clay, one article that I wanted to talk about was a systematic review talking about how acupuncture treats pain. So this article is from 2014. It's from Pain Management Nursing Journal, and it's by Chen and Wang. So what they were looking into was to see if acupuncture was good for various different types of pain. Um, they were looking at pain associated with dysmenorrhea, labor, low back pain, chronic headaches, and then other traumatic pains. And what they found was that it was effective for relieving several, several different types of pain. So they used a couple different outcome measures. Um, this was a systematic review, so they were looking at 15 different studies. Most of these studies, if you were um, to grade the level of evidence, were 1B. The study itself that I'm talking about would be 1A because it's looking at several different studies. Um, so some of those outcome measures that I had mentioned were the pain visual, visual analog scale, the short-form menstrual distress questionnaire, and also the short-form McGill pain questionnaire. So what they found is that to be effective, the acupressure that they used with the acupoints, the patient had to feel soreness, numbness, heaviness, distension, warmth. In other words, some sort of sensation to confirm the accuracy of the acupoint. 
And then the intervention was implemented by a practitioner pressing and rubbing the acupoints with their fingers or hands using a force of approximately three to five kilograms per ounce per second for five seconds and then releasing for one second. Um, and they did find that through reviewing all these articles that there was a credible evidence base for the use of acupressure in relieving pain and that the evidence base was reliable and that the evaluations of each review were also valid. And I think this is really great because acupressure is cheap, it's free if you do it yourself, and it can be either done by a practitioner or it can be done by the patient, which I think is great. And it also falls under our scope because just like a trigger point release, we can actually put pressure on acupoints as well, especially if our patients are experiencing pain. This is, can be something that we can do before a treatment session to make the exercises and treatments we do a little bit more accessible. I know you had a great article about acupuncture using e-stimulation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this article I found from the Journal of Neurosurgery and Anesthesiology uh, was by Zhu et al. in 2012. Um, so this looked at the effects of electrical acu-stimulation on post-operative nausea and vomiting in patients after intracorporeal craniotomy. Um, so as you can imagine, it can be very important to control pressures in the brain after a major brain surgery. So um, they wanted to see if they could use this really accessible uh, modality, especially in surgery, uh, before and after uh, this procedure. So they looked at 119 patients and they uh, applied this uh, transcutaneous electrical acupoint stimulation at the P6 pressure point. So I believe that means on the wrist. So they applied it 30 minutes prior to the procedure and the induction of anesthesia and uh, at various points up to 24 hours after the procedure. And here they found that the incidence of nausea and vomiting uh, was uh, reduced uh, six hours and 24 hours, um, and it was a significant reduction. So again, here we have um, an application that can sort of lessen the demand on more traditional Western medications or be used as an adjunctive uh, therapy uh, or uh, to sort of go alongside medication use. So Clay, it's interesting that you brought that up I found actually an article from the same journal, the Journal of Neurosurgery Anesthesiology, also talking about nausea postcraniectomy, except in this study they were using C-bands, so they were using acupressure via the wristband, so it wasn't done by an actual practitioner. Um, they had a little under 100 patients, almost evenly split in half, and what they found was that there wasn't a statistically significant difference in the nausea and vomiting when using C-bands or when using a sham intervention. So it seems like some ailments, it might be better to use acupressure and some, it might be better to use acupuncture. And I know you've looked into some other studies about C-bands and nausea. 
that came to a, a more positive result. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the articles I found was in the Iranian Journal of Reproductive Biomedicine that was uh, concerned with the amount of nausea, vomiting, and retching uh, in pregnant women. Um, so, in short, um, these women received um, acupressure in uh, the KK9 uh, acupressure point, another group in the P6 acupressure point, and another group had um, a control sham, so it wasn't on the exact pressure point. Um, and here they did find that there was a significant decrease in the nausea and vomiting um, and retching degrees before and after for both the intervention groups, but not in the sham group. So, um, in short, uh, the, they more specifically found that the KK9 um, pressure point was more effective in decreasing nausea, but the um, K9 and P6 point um, were better in earlier pregnancy um, and reducing vomiting and retching. So it seems that um, not only was it more effective on the points, but the different points um, had different effects. Another article I looked at um, looked at reducing nausea um, in chemotherapy patients. Um, that was an article published in the Palliative Support Care uh, Journal. Um, and here they found that nausea, vomiting, and retching scores, um, as well as mean anxiety scores, um, were reduced for patients who were able to apply acupressure at the P6 acupressure point. Um, they also compared that to a control group that um, did not receive um, the acupressure. So again, here's an application in a group of high need um, where it can also, um, you know, not only is it accessible, but it can also, I think, give patients a sense of self-care and authority over their condition. And I just know, you know, from personal purchasing, and I've lost my C-bands a couple times, it's very, very inexpensive. It's easy to learn how to use. And I think it, there's not very many contraindications for either acupuncture or acupressure. Now, we have a special treat. We have a master of traditional Chinese medicine, Mike Zalanka, owner of A to Zen Acupuncture in Manhattan, New York. And he's going to give us uh, the expert's point of view because obviously, you know, there's a lot of great evidence out there, some of which we've discussed but it's always great to have somebody who has real clinical knowledge talk about that. So we are here today with Mike Zalanka, who is an acupuncturist. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, happy to be here. Thank you for having me, Aaron and Clay. <laughs> um, Mike, I was wondering if you could introduce yourself and if you can tell us kind of what training and qualifications does an acupuncturist have? Sure. Okay. Uh, my name is Michael Zalanka, as Aaron said. I am a New York State licensed acupuncturist. I have, well, it, the training is actually, it's a little all over the place as far as uh, state to state and school to school. So 
I guess I could start out with saying what my specific credentials are, which is I have a Master of Science in traditional Chinese medicine. It was originally called Oriental Medicine, but they just recently changed it. Thank goodness they just <laughs> changed it. It was, it was uh, I, yeah, I don't even know why they kept it for as long as they did. But um, yes, so traditional Oriental Medicine, and that encompasses acupuncture as well as herbal medicine. There are different degrees. Some include herbal medicine in them. Some do not. So I opted for the one that did because herbal medicine is actually the reason I even went to a school that teaches Eastern medicine in the first place. Oh. So as far as accreditation goes, we are accredited by the national – you're going to have to cut this out because I actually don't remember what this fully stands for. <laughs> <It's-> <laughs> I have the initials someplace. I think it's the uh, NCCAOM. N- yes. Oh, man. It Also, Oriental Medicine at the end. So don't even need to bring that up. <laughs> but uh, so I am board certified as in we take our board exams in four different areas of fundamentals of Oriental Medicine acupuncture, biomedicine, which is what we refer to Western medicine as, and then herbal medicine as well. You don't actually need to take all four of those to practice in New York State. You only need to take your acupuncture and fundamentals boards. And once you pass those, you could get your license and practice in New York State. It does vary from state to state, but at least here, that's all you need. If you wanted to pursue the other two, the biomedicine and the herbal, you will then become what's called a diplomat of acupuncture oriental medicine rather and then you just get to add more letters basically to the end of your name so one of the things that we wanted to talk to you specifically tonight because uh you are an acupuncturist in addition to your other credentials but i know that acupuncture involves meridians and it has to do with chi and my very simplistic understanding is that Chi is the energy flow in the body and the meridians are kind of like highways. But I wonder if you could give a a better explanation than what I just said. Yeah, you know, that's a pretty good explanation. I mean, there's there's no simple way to describe chi. So let's just get the channels out of the way. Um, Channels, meridians, meridians are channels, channels are meridians. They are believed to be the spaces in between things, tissue like our blood vessels, our nervous tissue, our, you know, lymph system and muscle tissue, they're in these thin but three-dimensional spaces called the coulee. And that is where the chi travels. Now, chi doesn't just travel there because chi is all over the body. So let's, let's see, do we cover the channels? Channels also, there are 12 primary channels meridians i call them channels they're also referred to as meridians very commonly that's a one of the other things about eastern medicine that is kind of weird to get used to that different translations generate different words and different Mm -hmm. schools use different textbooks so we get different translations all over the place and you know like you uh spelled chi c-h-i and i'm used to spelling it q-i because it's just a different translation and some of those really warp like what one person's saying from what another person's saying. It's interesting. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a little all over the place with that. So the 12 channels, the primary channels correlate to organ systems in the body and they correlate to the organs themselves. 
as well as the function of the organs. We don't need to get into that because that's a little bit too into the weeds for this conversation. <laughs> but, uh, so then there's eight extraordinary channels, which don't correlate to, to specific organ systems, but they do serve function for the overall body itself. Uh, just as a quick example, there is a channel called the conception vessel, which runs in the front line of your body from your perineum all the way up to basically just underneath your mouth. And it's called the conception vessel because it's thought to be the first vessel that is created as we are gestating in utero. So because of that, it has a lot of deep source chi that you could access by needling that channel. And for a lot of very systemic issues, that could be a channel you might go to. Okay, so chi. Um, you know, for lack of a better term, everybody will say energy, but maybe it's just my upbringing and what I grew up with, but I really think of chi kind of like the force from Star Wars. <laughs> oh, Clay, you're going to love that. <laughs> yeah, I'm listening. <laughs> oh, good. I got Clay's attention with that? That's good. <laughs> so chi is within us for sure, but it's also on the outside of our bodies. It also extends from us. It's not just chi when we talk about a personal health yes we are talking about the internal and external chi of ourselves but not only that there are what chi is everywhere chi surrounds us it connects us it is from one person to another it you know animals have chi water has chi rocks have chi the earth has chi all these things are in chinese philosophy it's basically described as like before there was anything there was chi and then it just expanded and keeps expanding. So it's like, it's the universe, it's the microverse, it's everything, it's nothing. It's a very interesting concept. And everybody will say, if you think you understand what she is, you probably are missing something. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, so we're born with chi because our parents imbue chi to us. But then that's our, what, that's what's called yuan chi. It's our source chi. So we draw from, you know, from our mothers, our fathers, and then also from cosmic chi to make us. Now, once we are born, we need to keep replenishing that chi, and that is done with the air we breathe and the food and drink that we take in. And that is called um, gong chi, which is the breathing, and then I believe there's the ying chi, which is the nutrition chi. And that keeps us going, and there's a couple more things like uh, jing, which is our essence, yin and yang which are for lack of a better word the um the more yang is more energy yin is more substance and the interplay of those all work together to make us function or not function as the case may be thank you for that very good answer <laughs> i don't know if that answered the question i don't remember what i got on my chi paper that i that i related it to the force but i think it was i think i got a good mark on it uh, I think I made a good connection there. Well, um, I think it also makes it very relatable because I know, especially coming from a Western perspective that's interested and finds Eastern medicine very effective, but, you know, it, it makes it more understandable to be able to draw those analogies, especially something like The Force, which even I've only seen one Star Wars movie, <laughs> but it, it gives me, um, I think, a more complete idea than just energy. Right. Oh, that's good. I mean, that's good. And, you know, George Lucas, I believe, did draw on Eastern philosophy to create his 
mystique about the force, I believe. Uh, oh yeah, so you, he definitely yeah, did. Yeah. <laughs> right, Thank you. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what your process is when you start working with a patient, when they come in with an ailment or something that they'd like you to work on. So there are, once again, differing ways of diagnosing in Chinese medicine, which is very interesting. And at the same time, it's, you know, it gives you the opportunity to kind of find what resonates with you most, which Mm -hmm. almost makes it seem a little hokey. But the weird thing is, so my partner is a acupuncturist as well. She treats in a vastly different style than I do. And we both get results. Um, There's completely different, not diagnostic methods, but approaches to how we treat. So the eight extraordinary vessels that I mentioned before, she treats a lot according to those vessels. I will often treat from a mix of a Western point of view, depending on what the condition is, mixed with the traditional Chinese medicine view, which is very simply what most people are familiar with um, that comes out of, I guess, Mao Zedong's revolution. He kind of mainstreamed acupuncture to kind of like fit with the modern world. He got rid of a lot of the really esoteric type of things and kept it a little more, I guess, palatable for the masses. So mm-hmm. that's what basically evolved into traditional Chinese medicine, and that is what I practice. So that is based on different paradigms of diagnosis. Four pairs of eight different, uh, I guess, extremes, so to speak. So there is excess and deficiency. There is yin and yang. There is hot and cold. And there is interior versus exterior. And usually most conditions will fall into one of those categories pretty neatly. And mm-hmm. from there, we ask our 10 questions, which we ask about various aspects of health. One of our big questions is temperature. What temperature do you feel? That usually gives us an indication about hot and cold. Um, with situations of pain, sometimes we will press into a body part. And I'm sure you guys had this experience with people you work with or yourselves. Sometimes that pressing in feels really good, and sometimes it feels terrible. Mm-hmm. So when it feels really good, it's thought to be a deficient condition. So you're adding some pressure in there and making it feel better because of that, like giving it a little extra bit. Now, when they're excess, it's like, it's basically like just don't go near it. You cannot touch it without it being an excruciating pain. And these start to fit patterns. So once we collect our information, we also incorporate Pulse taking, because the pulse in Chinese medicine, various aspects of the pulse correlate to different, number one, organs and channels, and then number two, physiological or pathological states. So there's a number of different pulse qualities to remember. And some of them are really rare to come by. Mm-hmm. Some of them, like you just don't see them in Western civilization, you know. One of the things about Chinese medicine that's interesting is that it was written thousands of years ago for a population and society that is uh, incredibly different from the one we live in today. So whereas there's a lot of deficiency and like real depletion conditions that you see in the in the classical text, you know, you don't really see like depletion so much in modern New York. Yeah, modern, like, <laughs> er, exactly. You know, when I go to Guatemala, it's crazy. Like the, the tongues, are, that's another thing that we look at. We look at tongues as well which is an interesting 
concept when you ask somebody to show you their tongue and to not brush their tongue because it takes the coating off because we look at the coating. So we look at the tongue. The tongue also correlates to various sections of the bodies and will reflect physiological versus pathological states. Um, Tongues are thought to change more slowly than pulses. So they're a little bit more reliable than a pulse because, you know, also in our culture, obviously there's a lot of people who take medication for one reason or another and, you know, drink coffee or tea or energy drinks. And those could really affect a pulse, obviously in the rate of it, of course, but also in the texture and the force. So pulses could be a little tricky and I personally use them at more to corroborate what the diagnosis I'm already forming in my head. And I usually use the tongue to kind of cinch that in. You know, sometimes after I see a patient for a while, I don't need to keep looking at their tongue. I will check in every now and then. But uh, it's definitely one of the key tools, I think, for most acupuncturists. Even if they're not taking pulses, they're probably looking at tongues. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you could tell... The tip, so just as a quick example, the tip of your tongue is the upper part of your body, tongue, uh, heart, and lungs. So you would potentially think that if there was some real redness or discoloration at the tip or maybe a lot of petechiae or inflamed taste buds that there may be a condition in the heart or lung channel. Uh, there's also the coating of the tongue, and that usually indicates good proper chi versus something like dampness, which is a condition. One of the conditions that we diagnose on, one of the patterns could be dampness in blank channel. Uh, So depending on the thickness of the coating and the quality of the coating, it could be damp, it could be phlegm, it could be room, there could be a number of different things, or it could be the reverse and there's not enough fluids in the body and there is a yin deficiency, which is meaning that the humors of the body, the fluids of the body have been somewhat depleted not to necessarily say you are physically dried out because a lot of people get concerned when you you know we talk about channels and the heart channel and oh your heart channel is doing this and you have dampness and they're like well what does that even mean (laughs) you know uh, it's doesn't necessarily mean that there is you know like your body's waterlogged or something like that but it could mean that there's a blockage and this comes back to chi one of the things, Chinese medicine is all kind of like, if chi is flowing fine, your body's going to be doing fine. Mm-hmm. But when chi starts to stagnate, that's when there's a problem. If the chi dynamic isn't properly functioning, problems will arise. And that problem could be pain. It could be dysfunction in an area. It could be something um, as internal and visceral as GI function, breathing issues. There, there's a lot of mechanisms by which chi can uh, affect you. And so I know that when chi is blocked, you you obviously use acupuncture, which are the thin needles. Um, I know there can be acupressure as well. Um, I was wondering, do they kind of fit into the same sort of like Venn diagram? What would you say is the difference between the two and do you use them differently? For example, um, would you treat somebody with needles when they're in session with you and then give them acupressure points to practice at home or how do you use the two? Okay. That's a good question because you know, they come, they are 
the only thing that separates them is the needle really and mm-hmm. the penetration into through the skin and into the muscle tissue or whatever depth you're trying to get to even more superficial than that the acupressure that i know of follows the same exact channel theory and you're treating the points the exact same way as you would with the needles the difference in my opinion number one i do there's a few i think that acupressure is more painful because really i i yeah it's not as fine it there's a lot more sensation that's happening Mm -hmm. like you're not necessarily getting chi you're getting a lot more sensation so there's another aspect of chi (laughs) when we insert needles the acupuncturist and the patient often will feel a sensation that is called the chi sensation. It's actually called da chi. And sometimes it's felt as like a needle grab. You'll feel the muscle kind of wrap around the needle. You'll feel a little bit of a twitch or a little jump. Um, I've definitely you know, felt those jumps. <laughs> right. You felt, I mean, what we're doing there is we're stimulating the motor nerve, which is very Western based. You know, we're targeting the area with the least electrical resistance and we are firing that motor nerve and making it you know hopefully relax or just get back into tip-top shape because you don't always need to make them contract and to you know to twitch to make them better sometimes in fact you're not looking to make them fasciculate at all Mm -hmm. and you know that can be really uncomfortable but uh the chi sensation that we get when we insert the needles I don't think you really get with the acupressure or if you're getting that chi sensation as a patient, I, it may just be kind of dampened down by the rest of the sensation. Cause you know, a thumb is a lot bigger than a, than a needle. That's no thicker than a strand of hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, you know, you just, you can't get to that motor nerve as effectively with your fingers, no matter how deep you press, mm-hmm. you know, it, you're not going to get there. I was just actually doing acupressure today on a patient because I was treating them front and back for hip dysfunction and they just, you know, there was so many needles on the back working with the glutes and the quadratus lumborum and some of the vertebral segments that when we flipped the patient over to the front, it just felt like it was too much to do another round of five needles. So I got mm-hmm. a few in to the tensor fascia lata, and then started working on the sartorius and the pectineus and just did some acupressure there. Not really necessarily for points on a meridian per se. They're more, they're, they're more of the muscle motor points. And the interesting thing is that um, acupuncture points in general often correlate to large neurovascular bundles. Like the really major points you could see there's a large conglomeration conglomeration of tissue there. It's pretty cool. And muscle motor points will often fall on meridians themselves. Sometimes they're slightly off. Sometimes they're, you know, to the left, to the right, but they are all kind of within range of each other. It's, it's pretty cool to see the overlap a lot. Yeah. Looking at one of your posters um, of the channels, it did very much remind me of, you know, diagrams that, you know, show either nerve pathways or, um, you know, circulation, blood circulation pathways. Do you ever assign seeds? Oh, yes. I'm sorry. The second part of that question, ear seeds. Okay. So I do give patients ear seeds. Um, 
Ear seeds are really cool. I do utilize them. I also use little press tacks as well, and they're actually stimulating the point a little bit. I don't use those on the ear so much. I'll do them on points on the like the arms and the legs. But for ear seeds, since the ear, the ear's great. I mean, I, <laughs> like the ear is a fantastic and not not exactly tool, but because of the vagus nerve innervation in the ear, there's so much that you could do to the body by just inserting in the ear. And one of the great things about it is after the patient gets up from the treatment, you could place ear seeds on these various points in the ear because each part of the ear correlates to a different organ of the body or region of the body. Some there are actual points as in like the apex of the ear there's a point that if you needle it and maybe even bleed it a little bit with a lancet i know it sounds a little more barbaric but bleeding is part of what we do to a degree not bloodletting but just you know drop or two here or there uh-huh. it's actually really good at reducing blood pressure so really? it has some systemic effects as well wow so that's we, so interesting yeah it's pretty cool uh for allergies as well there's good points on the ear um you know joint pain overall pain, nausea, really good points there. And you could put the ear seeds on them and patients could take them home for a few days, three days. You could even send them home with ear seeds, some extra ones with a little bit of a diagram. They could put them on themselves with the help of a mirror or a friend, and they could just stimulate the points themselves when they're feeling either pain, stress, discomfort, what, what have you, you know, or just even a little boost of energy sometimes. And um, what you just said about all the different points on the ear is really fascinating. Um, And you mentioned several different ailments, um, nausea, pain, um, I think you said anxiety or sleeplessness. Do you find that acupressure and acupuncture works better for some ailments more than others? Like I know that I've had it done for hip pain and it's just absolutely phenomenal. Is is there anything that you find that it doesn't work particularly well for? Uh, well, for I would say if you get a broken leg, you should probably go to the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that might not help so much. The pain, yes. The healing, a hundred percent. But the actual incident, you need to go to an ER. It, having said that. I was doing one of those crazy obstacle races a couple of years back and I sprained my ankle, stupidly continued the race. When I got home, my ankle was really, it was just swollen, painful. And I did some emergency acupuncture on my ankle. I bled one of the points at the tip of my toes, which is uh, thought to be a point like it's the end of the channel. So if there's some real intense swelling going on in the region of that channel, you could bleed the end point and it's kind of like taking uh, the lid off a teapot essentially. Mm-hmm. So I had 50% reduction in swelling that day and then got a couple more treatments in the early stages of it. And, you know, thankfully knock on wood, I haven't had any issues with my ankle sprain, which I know can be very stubborn for a lot of people and maybe good healing, maybe good genetics, but I, think a lot of it had to do with the acupuncture. So there is a use for acupuncture in emergency situations. Now, what conditions I don't think it works well with, I can't really say for sure because the truth is 
it's only because I don't have my own personal experience treating that condition itself. Mm-hmm. So I had a really stubborn condition. Um, what I feel it can be really difficult to treat personally are conditions that are congenital or that, um, you know, have a deep genetic root to them. Mm-hmm. So I find those are very stubborn. There can be progress made, but it's often you might take two steps forward, one step back for a while. And the one of the interesting things that I love about acupuncture in the world of Eastern medicine is that it's like a puzzle sometimes to try to figure out. And I know that's a little harsh to say to your patient, like, listen, we're going to try this for a few weeks and see how it goes. And if you're not getting progress, we're going to switch it up and reassess. Some patients are okay with that. Obviously, some patients aren't. They want it to be quicker or more definitive. And I, I get that. But sometimes you just have to try one tactic. And then if that's not going your way or you're not getting the results you both want, then you have to figure out a different tactic. Well, I think that's also very similar for physical therapy because I know in my clinical practice, you know, sometimes we have to go through and try things, you know, like this is what I think will be good, but if it's causing you an increase of pain or if it's causing pain somewhere else up and down the chain, then we need to tweak that. Um, so I, I don't think that sounds bizarre at all. Right. Um, yeah, that's good. I think that's one of the reasons that PT and acupuncture work very well together. And often I've had, when I used to work at a place that offered both, you know, the patients would love to go to PT, but they always wanted to get the acupuncture seconds just so they could mellow out, relax, and, you know, I guess feel good after their workouts or their therapy of whatever they were doing. Well, it is very relaxing. I mean, sometimes, do you find ever that uh, patients just are so scared of needles that they're like, that that causes too much tension? Or kind of like, you know, once they're in with the needles, when you've explained what's going on, they're having the time on the table that it just kind of unwinds? I'd say it depends. It's so individual like as response because i have had those patients that are very needle phobic some patients that will continue to come consistently as long as i don't needle them on their front because i don't ever want to see the needles (laughs) so they're cool with needles anywhere they can't see once they see the needle they're not happy and stressed i've had patients that come in very stressed out we get the needles in they mellow out they pass out they come out all kind of like in la la land a little bit (laughs) <laughs> I, you know, I've also had patients who you get the needles in, you think they're going to calm down, you walk in, and they're just staring at the ceiling. You know, just I'm like, are you? Have you been looking at the ceiling this whole time? Because it, it's not pretty. You know? <laughs> like, not a fun, not a fun view. And I, just some patients don't calm down from the acupuncture. Most, most do. 100 percent um, is not. Yeah, it's not 100 <laughs> percent. Well, Mike, I want to thank you so much for your time. I'm sorry this took longer than we had expected, but this has been so informative and really, really in-depth and just a lot of great material. Cool. I hope you edit a lot of the stupid stuff I set out. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. I'm going to stop the recording. And, um, you know, if if anyone's looking for a great acupuncturist, you can go to A to Zen Acupuncture. Um, and that's your website as well, right? Yes, it is. Uh, 
Okay. Thanks for the plug. <laughs> this camera, this camera, this camera. Wow, wasn't that great, Clay? Yeah, it was really great to get to meet Mike, and he seems like a really nice guy and super passionate about acupuncture. And, you know, according to him, it seems like there aren't very many contraindications for either of these two methods. Um, you know, if you're pregnant or if you have any sort of um, blood thinning disorder or if you're on blood thinning medications, it's obviously best to do this under supervision or to go to somebody who really knows what they're doing. And it seems like um, besides people with congenital disorders, that it's very effective for a wide range of ailments. Yeah, I really like that um, you mentioned that it was you know, a little more difficult to get results for genetic conditions and congenital disorders, um, and that it was really more about optimizing function, because as physical therapists, that's really what we're in the ball game to do, is just make um, people's function better so that they can live more productive and full lives. And also, like Mike mentioned, physical therapy and traditional Chinese medicine can really work great hand in hand. Um, I know that um, I've definitely volunteered in a few offices, in a few PT practices where they've had an acupuncturist on staff or, you know, renting a room in the building. And patients really seem to like to have both disciplines in one location. Very convenient. Absolutely. And it gives patients uh, a bit of choice. Yeah, I think it's um, definitely something that can be used alongside traditional medicine and our physical therapy treatment. Um, like you said, there's very little risk involved uh, with both acupuncture and acupressure. Um, as you mentioned before, acupressure can even fall into our scope of practice, and it's easily teachable uh, with just a little bit of knowledge. So I definitely think this is, is a great uh, thing that can be added to pretty much anyone's uh, care routine. And just from personal experience, um, you know, both using the C-bands, which, you know, I, I had mentioned many times before, I'm their biggest fan, but also I've gotten acupuncture for a variety of different things. I've gotten it for insomnia, for GI disorders, for hip pain, um, and at some point, I might even do it like a, an acupuncture facelift. I've seen pictures of Jessica Alba getting it. And once I make some of that PT money, ooh, honey, you bet I'm going to get that too. Um, so I hope you all have learned a lot about acupuncture, acupressure. We also want to give another big thank you to Master of Traditional Chinese Medicine, Mike Zalanka of Ada Zen Acupuncture in Manhattan. And thank you so much. For listening to another episode of the Elder Millennials Zen Master Flex. Pew, 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 pew. Pew, pew, pew. Thanks so much and see you next time.